Hello everyone, good afternoon. We're live. Saturday afternoon Dhamma meditation question and a question and answer. So I'm here with Chris who is going to be asking asking questions on your behalf. For the first part, we can have a little conversation. If you have anything to say, say in the chat if you want to say hello or whatever. Looks like Chris has a fan. I don't know what to do with all this fame. Fame and blame, fame and fame and infamy. Or, or fame and lack of fame. These are the worldly dhammas. Lack of fame meaning uh, obscurity. Nobody knows who you are. You have no friends. You have no status in society. You can go from one to the other pretty quick. Same with praise and blame. Right? Everyone loves you and then you do something wrong. Boy, oh boy. You lose it all quickly. So this morning we were studying Majjhima Nikaya number 21, which everyone I think agrees is a very important sutta. It's the simile of the saw. I'm not going to tell you what the simile of the saw is if you don't know because we haven't got there yet. We just started studying and I think it's one that we might take a little bit of time on. It brings up a lot of issues. It got us in quite a debate over ethics and judgment and criticizing and on our duties to to judge and criticize what it means to be kind what does what does it mean to be kind You wish a bad person to go free. So you see someone being attacked, for let's say, for being an evil person, and people are attacking that person, or they had to go to jail. What do you wish for? Do you wish for that person not to have to go to jail? Do you think that's a good thing? What about if someone who's a very evil person gets sick? And everyone says, oh, good for the good, good riddance, I'm glad they're sick. And someone else says, that's not very nice, which it isn't. We should wish for them to be healthy. But then someone else says, but if they're healthy, that'll give them the opportunity to do many bad and evil things. And someone pointed out to us that when you're practicing kindness, that's not what kindness means. So if you're truly practicing kindness, like as your practice, 
You don't make any reference to what is in the benefit of the person. You don't have to think about um, what, will, what will actually be good for them. You just wish for, for that to come to them. You wish for good to come to them. May they be free from suffering because it's more about your attitude towards the person, right? But it's an interesting thing. It's an interesting question. And it brought up an interesting point that sometimes the best thing for people is to suffer. Not because suffering is intrinsically beneficial, but because practically speaking, suffering can often lead to growth. I mean, it doesn't directly, obviously, and sometimes it actually makes people bitter, depressed, suicidal, etc. But for some people, it's the only thing that's going to help. So people who have been lucky, who have abused privilege and uh, been corrupt and manipulative and so on. People in positions of power, for example. Sometimes the only thing is a change in worldly dhammas, right? Someone who is very famous suddenly having a scandal and losing all of their arrogance and pride, being humiliated, sometimes it's very good for them. So you shouldn't wish for them, for them to be, uh, to, to avoid this. You should wish for them to be happy, and you should wish for them to gain, uh, to gain, gain all the good, all these good things through deserving. I mean, ultimately, with metta, you just wish them well. You don't have to think about it. But it brought up the interesting idea that what's good for people is not always the good things. The good worldly dhammas, wealth, praise, pleasure, uh, and fame. These can be very destructive, right? Not because in, in and of themselves they're bad because the tendency is to attach to them. So I was thinking about this, and part of what we were talking about was in relation to certain worldly events that shall remain nameless. Worldly events that cause a great divide of opinion, cause people to take sides like a sports game or a, a, a war or something, you know. And to cling to people, and it gives rise to much anger when what you are, well, much upset and suffering when the object of your affection and your support, the team that you support, when they are when they lose, when they are uh, spoken unkindly of, criticized. And it's funny, it was interesting because that kind of came up in our discussion and that's exactly what the, the, the simile of the saw starts with. What we've gone through so far is this idea of a group of people being criticized and when they were criticized, one monk got very angry. And a 
attacked the monks who were criticizing these people because they were his friends. They were the people he loved, the people he, the team he supported, or the people who he felt were his, you know, a self-attachment to. And that's something we have to be very careful about. The Buddha didn't even say that about his religion. He didn't even tell people to cling to his religion and take it and identify with his religion. He said, if another religion says something right, we say that that's right. He said this about people. If there are good things about a people, find those good things. If a person has bad qualities, look for what's good in them. If they don't have any good qualities, what you should say is, well, everyone goes by their karma. And not be upset, not, not attack. And when people do criticize the people use or criticize anything that is you or yours, that's the, the simile of the saw, how it begins, he said. And he says it elsewhere as well. Don't cling to that. When you get angry, how could you ever see what the truth is? And that's the whole point. We should be critical of people. We should be pointing out what's wrong, especially if we're in a position of authority. I gave the example of as a Buddhist monk, when I hear about monks doing bad things, it's my duty to speak out. Or it's the duty of the Sangha to, to, to elect someone to speak out, to make a statement. You can't just say nothing and say, well, I'm not supporting it. You're in a position of authority, or even just a position as a human being. If your children ask you of something, someone was asking about their children, you kind of have a duty to 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 make a statement. What this person did is wrong. I don't support what they did. But it doesn't mean we hate them. It's kind of like the Christian idea of hate this, uh, love, love the sin, hate the sinner, or something like that. I think I agree with that. Someone pointed out to me, a Christian actually pointed out to me that it's not a very charitable thing. You should love everyone, right? You should, or, or the point is, you shouldn't criticize what people do as sin because it's up to them. But in Buddhism, it's not about sin, and you should never, of course, hate acts. And that's was his point. It's a good point. So it's not quite hate the sin, but be clear on what is right and what is wrong. People can't be right or wrong. What they do and their qualities of mind, it's that. Which is right and wrong, but, but only in terms of how it causes them stress and suffering. It causes them to do right or wrong things. So in these times when the world is divided... There's only one division that we should look at, and it's not political parties, it's not nations, it's not cultures, it's not religions. So, of course, it's not class or race or gender or age. It's not monastics versus lay people. The only division we should be looking at that's really and truly important, beside, above any, above any, simply being worldly separation mundane separation, conventional separation. The only thing that's beyond that is the separation between good and evil. 
And that is real. That you should never uh, ignore. What is evil is, should not be tolerated, even the slightest bit. And, and but I was sorry, tolerated maybe is a bad word, but should not be encouraged or accepted. When it's one's role to do so, one should speak out and say, this is wrong. This is evil. If it's not your duty, if you're not in, it's not your position to say, like if it's a stranger or someone who you have no relationship to, then you know, don't say anything, you know. It's not your business. But if your children ask you something about some famous person, you do have a duty to your children and as a teacher, the Buddha had duty to his students, and so he would talk when they asked him about Devadatta. He said very so strict things about Devadatta. The Buddha said bad things about people. It's not necessarily wrong. You just have to be sure you're right. You know, you have to be like the Buddha who knew. And most of us are not like that. Mostly we're not like that. Most important, what I'm trying to get at is let's not take sides. We should not take sides just because even if we see bad things, don't let that be a taking of a side beyond just taking a stance against that thing. If a monk does something terrible like abuses a a novice, a young monk or something. Well, they can't be a monk anymore, but it doesn't mean we hate them or condemn them. We wish for them to find peace and happiness, which means somehow eventually finding a way to overcome the evil corruption that's inside of them, which can be quite, no matter how extreme it is. Even Hitler, we won't say, it's okay, Hitler, may, may Hitler be happy, we will say, what Hitler did was a terrible thing. If, from what we understand, the things he did were many terrible things, and he had many terrible ideas. And, and we hope that eventually, wherever he is now, he can overcome those wrong views and wrong thoughts, cruel intentions and so on, and become free from suffering. Those two things are not incompatible, but they ha you have to specify them. We don't support Hitler. We support him overcoming what, who he is, his, his bad habits, which seem to be many. Or whoever, the, whoever Hitler is now, probably in a very bad state, one would think. All right, just some thoughts. What I actually wanted to say, why I really wanted to bring this up, is because I wanted to encourage people. This is a good time to join our study group if you're interested. It's on our Discord. And it's always a, an interesting time. Well, sometimes more interesting than others, but today it was quite interesting. And It might be somewhat a test sometimes of our wholesomeness. Sometimes we get caught up in unwholesomeness just like anyone and we're not perfect, but it is interesting. We just started the simile of the saw, so if you want to find out what the simile of the saw is, no better way than to join a study group. 
can probably find out information on our website about that. All right, on that note, I'm ready to answer questions if Chris is ready. Let's begin. Is meta practice worldly and therefore not useful for ultimate insight? Well, things that are worldly are all useful for insight. Insight itself is, is worldly in the sense of being mundane. Now, if you mean worldly in the sense of unrelated to spiritual development, maybe that's what you mean. And, and in that case, yeah, it wouldn't be. So is metta practice worldly? No, metta practice is very spiritual. Let's put it this way. Anything that changes the mind is going to be important to your development of clarity of mind. I don't like the word insight so much. It can be misleading, but vipassana meaning seeing clearly. You can only see clearly if your mind and your mental faculties allow you to see clearly. So metta is something that really helps to bolster and purify your mental faculties, strengthen them. So it can be very useful. Metta, of course, means friendliness for those who are not up on it. How does one keep the human monkey brain from bringing them back to society? Human monkey brain. So by that I assume you mean something particular in the mind as opposed to a human monkey brain as in a physical sense. So let's, I mean, I just want to point that out to be, to let, let's be a little more clear than that, even though you're, I don't think you're being, sort of kind of like being facetious, I think. So that's not a problem. It's just that let's be clear what we're talking about here. What we're talking about are habits, habits of returning to society, as you put it, whatever that means. It means thinking about things that are unuseful, unbeneficial, unrelated to spiritual development society, issues in society. How do we stop that from happening? We don't. These are habits. Habits are things that have power. Uh, the mind works in such a way that whatever you incline towards, or whatever you, you pay attention to, becomes the inclination of the mind, so it grows as a habit. To change that, the habits have to change. And so meditation is a sort of a habit, the creation of a clear thought. When you say to yourself, thinking, that's a clear thought. It is a thought, but it's a clear thought when you're thinking. You think about something, what is your reaction? Thinking. This is thinking. It's a recognition of it as it is, and it reminds you of what it is. And then you remember it, at, you remember it for what it is, instead of losing yourself in reactions to it. So the habits change. And as a result, you... Your old habits are, are weakened. Also, because it's different, it lets you see the other habits as they interfere with each other. And you're able to then see the nature of bad habits as being bad. They're just stressful or tiresome. 
and so your mind becomes disinclined towards them through the practice. You should not be thinking, how can I stop this from happening? You should be thinking, what is this? And reminding yourself of what it is. That's all you should be doing. And the clarity, the, the change will come from that. What are your thoughts on guided meditations? My meditation teacher says to start with guided meditations as it'll improve concentration, then to move on to unguided after a few months of daily practice. I don't think that's necessary. Maybe for that type of meditation, not for this type of meditation. So you're coming to ask me, and in this tradition, guided meditation isn't really looked upon as very important. If you haven't read the booklet, go ahead and read that if you're interested in this technique. I mean, this Q&A is about our tradition, so if you're not interested in it, that's fine. But that's the only answer you're going to get is consider reading the booklet, try it out, and you really shouldn't need to be guided through it. What is useful is to have meetings with your teacher. So what we all also offer is an at-home meditation course. So if you're interested in that, you could sign up for that. And then we meet once a week. And that's the guidance that you get. And that's enough. When I meditate, can I put a pillow under my back and lean on the wall to sit on the floor so I avoid pain because of the pelvic tilt? There's little in meditation of this sort of thing that you can't do. question is, should you? Avoiding pain is never something you should do. So the answer here is probably no. I mean, the answer to the question, should I, would be no. Can you? Yes. Um, that being said, if your question is to avoid unbearable, excruciating pain, then yes, to some extent you should try and make it so it's bearable. How do we know if we're becoming complacent in our meditation practice? Wait, Chris. Yeah, it's not working anymore. I don't know what the issue is. Bhante, the next slide appears to be up to me. Yeah, but it's buffering. All right, let's back again. So sorry, we're probably having some issues with the stream again. I don't know what the internet problem is, but it looks to be stable again. All right, how do we know if we're being complacent in our meditation practice? I don't know that you would know. I think if you're complacent, hmm, that's maybe not a fair answer. I, I, I'm not quite confident in this question. I think the answer that if you're going to ask that question is just don't be complacent. It's not a matter of 
doing everything right and then realizing, oh, oh, I'm doing it, but I'm being complacent somehow. If you're being complacent, you're probably not doing it. So the, the way the the what should I do when I'm being or what should I do to avoid being complacent is simply just do the practice. You don't really have to look at it as looking for a sign that you wouldn't know that you're being complacent. The answer, I think, is are you meditating or are you not? Are you using the technique or are you not? Because if you are, you're being apamada, you're not being negligent, you're not being complacent. If you're being complacent, you wouldn't be able to know that you were being complacent. It's only when you stop being complacent that you ask this question and that you do something about it. Which is just to not be... It's not like there's some particular quality of the practice. When you're doing the practice, that's not being complacent. I find myself anticipating the labels rather than feeling the experience. What situation is this? They are quite automatic without presence. Compared to awareness without labels, why do we label? I mean, these are kind of judgments and interpretations of what you're experiencing. So let's parse this out. Anticipating the labels. I don't quite understand what that means, but perhaps there's some emotion before you'd label, like some conf confusion or, or uncertainty about how to label. But if, there's a, if there actually is anticipation, then you should just note that. Anticipating, anticipating. And that might seem counterintuitive. I'm asking you to do what you can't do or something. But that really is it. There's, there is no need to anticipate. And if that's what you're doing, you should just note that. Because noting doesn't take any anticipation. As for feeling the experience, that's not what this is about. This is Mindfulness is not about feeling. It's about reminding yourself. It is what it is. We're not actually interested in the details of the experience. The Buddha explicitly said... Nanimita gahi nanubyanjana gahi. One doesn't grasp at the details or the particulars. The signs, the, the, the signs being um, labels of it. Like, what is it? It's this or it's that. It's big, it's small, and so on. We're just trying to remind ourselves it is what it is. If they're automatic, I mean, one way that might be a problem is if it's not in response to an experience at all. Sometimes when you're walking, for example, you might say stepping right even before you start moving the foot, and that would be anticipating the movement. That would be automatic. Or you just say stepping right, stepping left, and you're not even clear about what's going on with the feet. That's not the idea. The idea is when you feel the foot start to move, you start to note. When you experience pain, the noting is in response to the feeling of the pain. When you think, you remind yourself thinking because you're thinking. Awareness without labels is just awareness. Awareness is not special. This is about cultivating clear awareness, an awareness that is objective. And that's what the idea of the noting is to straighten the mind out so that you don't react, so that you don't have any extraneous thoughts or even interest in the details of the experience. Seeing is just seeing, hearing is just hearing. The Buddha said this let, let seeing just be seeing. Another thing that happens is things disappear very quickly when you note them. So it feels like sometimes 
it's not doing anything. You note, and well, what was the point of that? It's gone. That actually is the point, because ultimately that's what you, at the very highest level, that's what you need to see, is that everything just arises and ceases. When you get to the point that you can see everything as merely an experience that arises and ceases, you've come to the top and you'll feel it. You'll feel completely at peace with no reactions, no judgment, and no suffering. When you're at the top of the world, you have complete and perfect equanimity. And that's what allows you to let go. Is it better to be mindful in every moment, even though every moment is painful, and why? Well, to some extent, moments can't be painful. It's our reactions to the moments that are painful. To some, depending what you mean by pain. But take pain, physical pain, for example. Yes, it's physically painful, but it's it's also usually mentally painful, and it's that which isn't necessary. And if you're mindful, you can avoid. If you truly see pain as just pain, you can avoid the mental pain. So that's the whole point of being mindful. When you see something just as it is, it has no power over you. That's the whole point of reminding yourself. You're trying to change the way you interact with things. How can we determine what might be inconsequential in meditation? Clock ticking, random sounds that my house makes, etc. Can these just be ignored from the get-go? Ignoring anything really doesn't do you any good, so you should try and note anything that distracts you. Don't see distractions as a problem. See them as an opportunity to note something, I mean, or as a, a reason to note something. If you hear the clock ticking, then note it. Take that as your object. It's not any less an object than the rising and the falling. And it's especially interesting that you were distracted by it. So note hearing, hearing if you like or dislike the fact that you were distracted or you like or dislike the, the distraction. should note that as well. If after a long time the thing doesn't go away, like ambient sounds, then yeah, you can just ignore them. But it should be after your mind has sort of stayed with it and is not really interested in it anymore because likely then it's less inclined to go, go back to it later. How can a feeling of conceit be noted? It can be noted like thinking or, well, feeling, I guess, if it, if it appears to you as a feeling. One thing about conceit and other delusion-based states is that you don't have to so much note them as you do have to um, prevent them. Because when you're seeing clearly, they don't arise. So you can note it, even just knowing when you know that you were being conceited, feeling if there's if it's kind of a feeling to you. But ultimately, it's just about noting everything. And as you note things, you're going to start to see them not as me or mine, but as things that arise and cease that have no no quality of being possessed or being identifiable or, or proper to be identified with.
How do I build a daily meditation habit? A good way is to do a meditation course with a teacher. That's why we recommend the at-home course. It's all free. We're not making money off of this. We're not getting anything out of it. It really is just something we're offering. What, we, what I get out of it and what we get out of it is the opportunity to help people, which is a great thing. That's it. So if you want to sign up for that, it really is a good way to ensure that you practice because you're you are um, accountable to someone. The teacher, you have to do so many, you have to do an hour a day at least in order to continue. So it helps psychologically to keep you on track. Do you have any practical advice for getting out of a rut where your mindfulness just isn't there and feels far away? Sometimes it feels like I have to struggle a lot before getting over the hump. Right, and practice can be difficult. I guess the best thing I can say is don't be discouraged when it's difficult. You know, don't have a sense that it should be easy. There's nothing to really say besides do the practice, and I can't guarantee you're going to do that either. So that's up to you to figure out. If you want, there are one one good thing is to find support. So as I said, doing the meditation course, finding a group, associating with people who are practicing that sort of thing. The only way to get out of the rut is to actually be mindful because it's not something you're either in or out of. It's something you do every moment. So if you if right now after asking this question you're mindful just for a moment and well you've you're not in a rut in, the, in that moment. I guess I'd say it's kind of an illusion to think that you could be in a rut. It's just a concept. What should I do with my negative thoughts? I notice it there and keeps repeating for a day or two. I don't know, have you read our booklet on how to meditate? That might be a good place to start. Sounds like you may not have. If you have, try to practice according to it. If you're interested, you could do the at-home course. There's links to these, I'll keep mentioning, but there's links to them in the description. During meditation, I struggle a bit with the notion of noting and letting go, and the realization of suffering, impermanence, and non-self. Should I not be returning to the breath when anything arises? When something arises, you should note that and go back to the stomach. I don't know if you've read our booklet. It sounds like you might have because you're talking about noting. Letting go is not something you do. Realizing suffering, impermanence, non-self is also not something you should be concerned with. 
You just be concerned with your experiences and noting them. When something arises, note it. When it's gone, go back to the stomach. If you're doing sitting meditation. Could the practice be as a side effect beneficial for the work? In general, for problem solving, I find that five minutes of practice, a walk, or a shower, I don't know why, has quite an impact. Hmm. Well, I don't know about a walk or a shower. I'm sure that they could be supportive. I think five minutes of practice is probably more powerful. Though, you know, a walk or a shower is about changing your mind state, getting you out of a out of a rut, so to speak. Uh, so it refreshes you. Sometimes changing our state of mind can be very useful. Changing the postures, cleansing the body can be a good thing, give sort of a refresh. I mean, that's just worldly stuff. Can the practice be beneficial to worldly things? Of course. Do you use the mind in worldly things? Of course. So a better state of mind is definitely going to help your worldly life. It will help with relationships, it will help with uh, work, study. I have made strides in purifying hatred and anger from my mind through seeing clearly, but fear remains a constant issue. Fear and anxiety is always too strong for noting or anything else to help it. May I ask your advice? I don't think something can be too strong for noting, but my, I wonder if you're trying to help it, and that's the problem. Because it's easy to get discouraged if you think what you're doing is not helping the things you want to, the things you see as problems. But that's not the point of the practice. That, I mean, that, that's the ultimate goal, of course, is to free ourselves from suffering. But the way to do that is not to get rid of anything. It's not to fix things. It's to see them clearly. And seeing them clearly changes our perspective. We no longer look at them as problems. And because we don't look at them problems, we don't, as problems, we don't react to them. Because we don't react to them, they, get, they, they weaken. Uh, they have less power over us. So... Do note fear, afraid, or anxious. Note the physical consequences, the physical symptoms of those things, those emotions. Feeling, feeling. But don't expect for any of it to go away. That's crucial, to not expect for any of it to go away. That's what we mean by non-self when you hear this concept. You're going to see that you can't make them go away. And you'll want them to go away, and you'll try to make them go away, and you'll see it's not working, so you'll get discouraged. But seeing that and seeing that again and again is a way of changing your perspective so that you start to understand that this isn't about control. Reality doesn't let you control things that you've created. They take a, on a life of their own. So we call them habits. And by that we mean they are, well, they have a power in a life of their own and they're going to come back no matter what you try to do. The only way to change that is to change your habits and to slowly change your perspective so that you start reacting in different ways and where you'd normally get afraid you used to see more clearly and so you get less afraid or don't get afraid at all but it takes time it's not something you can just turn off
Can someone join the meditation at home course without being Buddhist? Yep. There's no well you have to keep the five precepts. So that's that's kind of Buddhist, but that's just rules of ethics. They're in the end of the booklet so you can read about that. And you have to follow the teachings of the Buddhist which are Buddhist, so But no, you don't have to be Buddhist beyond that. A problem might come if you're something else, like if you have belief in things that are that are antithetical to the practice. Like if you believe killing is okay or something. If you believe there's some good to be done by lying or cheating or something. Where you don't think anger is a problem or greed or attachment. Or if you believe that freedom from suffering comes from something outside of the practice, that can be problematic. So you might have to leave your other beliefs at the door. If you don't want to abandon them entirely, that's fine, but just put them aside. And the idea is that the meditation will help you see whether your beliefs are in line with reality. So you can choose to keep them or not based on more informed mind states. How to see arising and passing with static physical sensations that are always there? Now, there's no such thing as a static physical sensation that is always there. So just keep noting it until it goes away. <laughs> if after a long time it doesn't go away, that's fine. Some things are hard to see or they're stubborn or that sort of thing. You don't have to see the arising and ceasing of every single thing. You just have to see it enough so that you get it. Eventually your mind gets it and realizes that's just the nature of things. So I guess these simple answers don't worry about it. You don't, That's not necessary. But if after a while it doesn't go away, just ignore it. But any kind of belief you might have that something is always there or something is static, you got to let go of that belief. It's just not, it's just kind of silly because feelings are, are a part of experience. And so when you're not experiencing those feelings, they're not actually there. Now that might be hard to see in the beginning, but eventually you're going to see that actually they disappear when you stop experiencing them. The body doesn't actually exist. There's only the experiences of the feelings which arises and ceases. My job requires me to exercise. How do I stay mindful then? Is it rising, falling, or running, running? I wouldn't do rising, falling unless you're stationary. So you want to kind of model it around one or another of the practices. And walking meditation, you don't do rising and falling either. So instead you watch the foot. So if you're running, you can watch the legs. You can, you can also sometimes note the feeling in the lungs when you're running, the feeling in your muscles, pain or tension or so on. Heat, cold, you can note all that. Lots of stuff to note. What should I do about physical symptoms of anxiety? I hear advice about focusing on the symptoms, and I also have thoughts that run wild. So which should I focus on? 
doesn't matter what you focus on, like technic, uh, like categorically, or I don't know what the word is. Uh, all things being equal, it doesn't matter. But the criteria for deciding is which one is clearest. And it doesn't matter if you can't figure that out exactly. Whatever immediately catches you, just note that. Don't worry about it. It's not about catching everything. Again, it's about cultivating understanding that is general about reality. And that comes, doesn't matter what you note. As long as you're noting something, you're starting to learn about reality because these qualities that we're trying to understand are inherent in everything. I mean, mainly the quality of, of arising and ceasing. And so it doesn't matter if you don't see that in everything. When you see it in enough things, it, you understand it. And you start to see more clearly that that's just the nature of reality. So, anxiety, symptoms, thoughts, whatever, any of them, all of them, whatever catches you, note that. Once it's gone, try and go back to the stomach if you're doing formal meditation. That just helps you focus better. But if you get distracted again, just note whatever distracts you. How does one note the Dhammas? I feel that I understand the basics of noting the body, mind, and feelings, but not the Dhammas. Well, if you've read the booklet, it explains that. Maybe not as clearly as it should, but uh, you can try and get it out of the booklet. Basically, the hindrances and the senses are the main objects of noting there. The hindrances are liking, disliking, drowsiness, distraction, doubt. So those should be pretty straightforward how you would note that. Uh, and the other is the senses, seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, feeling, you note those as well, and that's pretty straightforward. What is the Buddhist attitude toward filial piety? My sense of responsibility towards my parents is sometimes paralyzing. Well, I mean, it isn't paralyzing. You react to it by getting upset in some way, I guess, or overwhelmed in some way. But you should note that reaction, no matter what the thing is. Things things can't paralyze you. You just get paralyzed, whatever that means to you. So note that feeling. But the question about responsibilities, yeah, we have responsibilities towards lots of different kinds of people just responsibilities towards anyone who we have a relationship towards. None of these responsibilities are in an ultimate sense, because in an ultimate sense, beings don't exist. There's only experience. That being said, practically speaking, there's so much benefit in respecting responsibilities. So you just have to under, you have to be practical about it. It's not something you should take as hard doc, doctrine or dogma, because it's not. It's not in an ultimate sense real. It's always going to be conventional and circumstantial. If your parents are terrible, terrible people, well, respecting them is one thing, but um, perhaps being very close to them is not valid. You might want to spend some time away from them out of respect for them even. Respect, I think, de de depends upon uh, a two-way street. If your parents are not doing their duties to you, then it doesn't mean you don't 
try and do your duties, but it means your duties are going to be circumscribed. You're not going to be able to realistically perform them in any meaningful way, depending on the level of, of abrogation. Abrogation, that's not it, of abscond, I don't know, the level of which your parents fail to do their duties. It's meant to be a source of goodness, a source of happiness, so don't think of it as a terrible, awful, scary thing. Think of it as an opportunity to pay back people who were good to you, if they were good to you. I mean, at the very least, the, your mother kept you in her womb, and they fed you and did something for you, so you can look at the good in them and try to see that, even if they may have problems. Most people do. I am a student studying for a university entrance exam. What to do for better focus, better understanding, and less stress? Also, what is the right way to do meditation for an always excited person? Well, I'd recommend you read our booklet. And if you're interested, you could take an at-home course. I think this meditation might help you. You asked me, and that's the answer you get. I'm not saying that everyone will give you the same answer, but that's what I have for you. I had read a book on Buddhism, and it talked about how the spiritual world is what we should focus on and not the physical world. It has sent me in a bit of an existential dread. How shall I take this? I wouldn't take it. I would put it down. There's lots of different types of Buddhism, and there's lots of books on Buddhism, but that particular statement doesn't seem doesn't seem useful to me it's not what i teach so pick up the booklet that i wrote I'm not, i mean consider picking it up if you're interested if you're interested in what i have to say that's what i have to say it's not my teaching it's teachings i passed on from my teachers and so i think it's useful and it talks about focusing on both the mental and the physical world. If you have existential dread, on the other hand, that's kind of unrelated because that doesn't have to lead to that. But the booklet also talks about how to deal with things like dread and fear. Is there any notion of Abhidhamma useful for practice? Being inclined to study, what would in general you recommend to deepen studying as a support for the practice? I mean, I guess I wouldn't try to deepen your study as a support for the practice, necessarily. If you're inclined to study, you might want to let go of that. But, I mean, to some extent, I have to hedge here, because study can be very useful and very good. But mostly... Much more what happens is people incline to more study and less practice. So I would generally minimalize or trivialize the need for study. You think of in the Buddha's time, he would give someone a talk and they would go and meditate for five years, just having having been given one set of meditation instructions. That might not be an entirely the best way to go about things, but that's the way it happens sometimes. Or he would give one teaching and they would just become enlightened because he was so good at teaching. 
there's not generally a sense that you need to study a lot. If you learn about the four satipatthana, the four foundations of mindfulness, that's really all you need. So the only reason someone I would think should study is if they've done a lot of meditation and they're a long-term meditator and they've done courses in meditation. And if that's the case with you, then at that point I would recommend studying the whole of the Tipitaka, really, as much as you can. Not all at once and not in one day, because that's not possible, but there's really no part of it that's not useful. Except maybe the monk's rules, they might not be that useful to you, unless you're a monk. Realizations during meditation involve thought. If thought is to be noted and the mind returned to the rising and falling, how does realization develop? Realizations don't involve thought. That's the whole point. They don't. You're wrong. I mean, I say you're wrong. You might disagree with me. That's fine. But I, I, I ask you to reconsider that statement. Because wisdom is not thought, it's not intellectual. Wisdom is seeing clearly. That's why the Buddha used the word vipassana, and that's why I don't like the word insight, because in English we, we that implies to us some kind of thought. Of course it doesn't literally, but that's how we use the word. Seeing clearly, vipassana, has nothing to do with thought. It has to do with seeing with your own eyes. And it's the mental eye, it's not really with your eyes, but it's as though the thing was right in front of you and you were seeing it with your own eyes. When you watch the stomach and you see it arise and cease and you start to look at it as a thing that occurs rather than this or that, good or bad, etc. That means seeing clearly. That comes from a sharpness of mind, a strength of mind, a clarity of mind. The noting is meant to do that. It's meant to cultivate and... Uh, refine the mind, the mind's uh, uh, awareness or, or engagement with objects from a ignorant and uh, undisciplined awareness to a disciplined, clear, objective awareness. It is what it is, nothing more, nothing less. So realization comes from that, from the clarity of having a clear mind. I have anxiety, but I'm afraid to meditate because I believe that I have attention deficit disorder. Are there other ways to practice meditation or do better with anxiety? If you're afraid to meditate, you should not afraid, afraid. It really isn't a problem. So I... I encourage you to consider reading the booklet if you haven't yet. If reading is challenging, well, think of it as a challenge. I mean, for some people, I guess, it might be hard to read if you're very much ADHD. Uh, but try and work at it. And if you can get what's being said in the booklet, the hard part is understanding how, you know, getting it through your head exactly what's being advised and to go from words on a page 
to actual practice. That's a challenge for, for most people, I think. You can read something and understand it intellectually, but putting it into practice, that's a step you have to take. So beware, be aware of that and figure out how to make that happen so you're actually doing it. But when you do it, then you would just say to yourself, afraid, afraid. And then you're already meditating. And you'll see it has a real effect on the fear. And if you're anxious, then you would note anxious, anxious. That's all there is to it. You don't have to meditate. You can already be meditating as soon as you do that. I don't think there's any better way to deal with anxiety that I know of. Please clarify the difference between getting caught in the small detail and breaking down the experience. Developing the practice means breaking down the experience and not using blanket noting terms. Well, you're using some specific language here and it's not quite how I would describe things. So getting caught, I never said small, I don't think, because I don't think it's... I don't think it's the it's relevant. Getting caught in any details is uh, is what I would go further than that and say we shouldn't get caught in any details. Anubhyanjana. Okay, yeah, maybe if you translate it, anu could mean small, but I don't think it does. Anubhyanjana means the details. Uh... Breaking down the experience, you don't break down experiences. Experiences are experiences, they aren't to be broken down. What you do is you break down you break down a convention, how to say, you break down what we think of as the experience into the actual experiences. So the terms themselves aren't that important in doing that. What's well, that's not fair. Okay, so a blanket noting term, then, for example, would be something like I can't think of it. I don't think noting terms are are problematic in that way. Well, see, because what's really problematic is self. When you say I am depressed. That's not a note. I mean, it is a mantra in itself. We say this, I am ADHD, I am depressed, I have anxiety problems. We can say, I am fat, I am useless, I am... Um, we can say, I am smart, I am perfect, I am good, I am enlightened. All of that is the problem. So it's our conceptualizing of things related to self. It also has to do with our reactions to things in terms of good or bad. But there's really no word that you could use to describe an experience that would be problematic as long as it describes the experience. Things that don't describe experiences are things like cat. Like if you hear a cat meowing and you say cat, cat, it's not because that's a blanket term, it's because it's not accurate. You're not actually experiencing a cat. So I guess you could say it's a blanket in the sense that it involves both the sound and the recognition and maybe even a thought and an image of cat, which are different experiences, right? But that's... So So you could call that a blanket term, but the, the bigger point is it's just not accurate. At no point are you experiencing a cat. You're experiencing sound, so that's hearing, thought maybe even vision in your mind, you see the cat, or you see a cat seeing. 
Dikte Diktamatang Bhavisati. Let seeing just be seeing. There's no breaking that down. It is what it is. It's a thing that arises and ceases. What's this booklet, and where can I find it? Well, I'm glad you asked. I'll turn to Chris for the answer to that question. Please find the How to Meditate booklet at htm.siriamangalo.org. And after reading it, you may sign up for an at-home meditation course at meditation.siriamangalo.org. All of this is free. We do not charge for it. We're not getting anything out of it in a worldly sense. We're not trying to con you into becoming Buddhists. There will never be a point where we try to convert you ever to Buddhism. Ever, ever. We're not trying to pull you in. There's no catch. There's no moving the goalposts. If you get something good out of it, that's what you take away. If at any point you say, I'm not getting anything good out of it, then you just stop. Money back guarantee. because you don't pay anything. I would like to ask for some advice. I find that the sensations of breathing disappear. I focus on the abdomen. I feel severe anxiety. What should I do? Where to focus when the breath is gone? Well, note the anxiety. That's probably what's causing it to go away. That's fine. I mean, that's to be expected. You're going to see lots of things about yourself as you try to focus on something banal like the stomach. Your mind's going to rebel and it's going to show you all your habits. That's the whole point. So, you're, congratulations, you've started meditating. When you're anxious, just say to yourself, anxious, anxious. And begin to learn how to note all the different aspects of it. Because anxious is one part, but there's also the rea reactions in the body to the anxiety, like tension in the stomach and so on. Tense, tense. That's not anxiety, that's something different. You'll try to note that as well. If you really can't find the abdomen, you can also just say sitting, sitting. But usually there's something else that's blocking it, like feeling very calm or feeling very anxious, etc. come to the end of the first tier of questions, Bhante. And we're over time. So, good, a good lively group. Thank you all for coming. Large group as well. Good to see people interested in these things. Thank you all. I appreciate your interest and your, your support, because it's a support to be interested. Your support means your engagement. When you ask a question, you help others as well. And when you help yourself through asking your questions and through getting answers, that makes you, in our minds, a better person because you're able to have a purer mind. You, you know, if it's if it, we're not trying to brainwash you by any means, but we have this belief that there are certain qualities of mind that are positive and beneficial, and it's our belief that that's what we're spreading. So, if you think that too, then you can appreciate that what you get out of this is you become a better person. That's it. It's not a better Buddhist or anything like that. If you're a better person, you make the world a better place. And so it's kind of like selfish, you know. We're doing this because we want to live in a better world. We're doing this because we want to be surrounded by good people. And we're doing this because by doing good, it purifies our minds. 
It keeps us from being selfish. It keeps us from being mean and cruel and so on. So we're certainly happy to be engaged in this way. There's so much goodness, I think, that comes out of things like this. So we're all happy to be here. Sadhu and sadhu to all the volunteers who make this possible. There's a lot of people behind the scenes who keep our website going and put the booklet together and are doing more good work. If you want to get involved with our community, you can join our Discord server. There's a way to do that, I think, on the website. If you want to join the study group again, you can join our Discord server. Thank Sad you all for coming. Sadhu and thank you, Chris, as always. Have a good week, everyone.